Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Hello and welcome to the show. I'm Marco Palmieri, your master of the macabre, and with me is your mistress of mayhem, Diana Foe. Recording from the madness of Manhattan. (laughs) I can't believe this is the last show of the season. Well, it's the last story of the season, to be sure. But like several others we've presented, it's so big that we needed two episodes to present it. But it's definitely a wild one to close out the season with. And I'm excited to present a story from P. Jelly Clark, who I had the honor of working with during my tour days. We had both met through the steampunk community years ago, but we weren't really interested in stories about England or white people, really. (laughs) Well, I can't blame you, but I didn't know you guys went back that far. That's amazing. We've been privileged on the show to feature a number of works by P. Jelly Clark, With a Golden Risha and The Paladin of Galota, are among two of my favorites. His high fantasy is always thrilling, epic, and tinged with terror. Yeah, at Tor.com, I remember buying my first story with him, A Dead Jin in Cairo, because it had a great Egyptian steampunk setting. Uh, But Fenderson has been writing Black High Fantasy long before he got into steampunk, and you can see his roots in the story Ghost Marriage, about a headstrong young woman who is haunted by the very protective and very violent ghost of her dead husband. So, gentle listeners, we're pleased to present part one of P. Jelly Clark's Ghost Marriage, voiced by Jennifer Canari. Ayen ran, her bare feet kicking up a cloud of ash-colored dust across the parched earth. Behind her, the hooves of horses thundered like drums, drawing closer despite her desperate strides. When the rope slipped over her head, she was struck with terror, a primal fear droned into her since she was a girl. She grabbed at it, frantic to free herself, but a harsh pull jerked her back as the noose tightened, cutting off her breathing. She went down, tumbling in an awkward heap that left her long legs splayed out from beneath her goatskin skirt. She coughed and sputtered, inhaling thick, choking dust as she fought for air, fingers grappling futilely at the coarse fibers biting into her flesh. From the corner of an eye, she caught sight of her captors. They were three men, bundled in dark robes with cloths of yellow, deep blue and crimson covering their faces. The one holding the wooden pole with the noose had jumped from his horse, its sleek black body speckled with flints of grey. He ran up eagerly as she backed away, scrambling on bruised palms and feet as best she could. 
but a cruel twist of his pole wrenched her neck, slamming her head down in an explosion of dust and pain. She cried out in prayer to the one Hialik. Of all those who had abandoned her, she did not count the great creator among them. Or at least so she hoped. She laid there with her face pressed to the earth, watching her captor approach cautiously, the way one would a frightened calf that might bolt at first touch. One of his eyes was ruined, a useless bit of white flesh covered by a flap of skin. But the other, dark and trained on her, glittered with excitement. She imagined that beneath his crimson face wrappings, he grinned just as fiercely. Reaching her, he quickly pressed her down, ignoring her cries of struggle as his knee dug into her back and his hand palmed her bare scalp. In one fluid movement, he loosed the rope about her neck, replacing the scratchy fibers with something cold and heavy, but no less constricting. Finishing, he moved from atop her and stepped back, exclaiming in satisfaction. Ayen struggled to sit, keeping her eyes on him. Her hands went up, feeling the metal clasped about her neck and the length of linked chain extending to her captor. Her heart fell in despair. Janjawa slavers. Who else but they would be out here, on the scorched lands beneath this merciless sun, where only the banished and forsaken, like her, were forced to walk alone? She cursed her carelessness. All knew Janjawa roamed here, hunting for slaves for their coffles, to be driven to faraway markets and sold beyond the known world, at least the world as her people, the Jeng, knew it to be. A fierce tug came on the chain as the Janjawa called to her in his tongue, a mashing of incoherent sounds no more known to her than the bleating of goats. She gazed at him coolly, but did nothing. She had watched many a stubborn cow do the same, become a rock, refusing to be moved when they did not wish. You could learn a lot from cows and rocks if you paid attention. The Janjawa's good eye creased. She imagined now beneath his wrappings he scowled. Another strong yank of the chain pitched her forward, sending her flat to the ground. Still, she lay, unmoving, refusing even to sit up. From atop their horses, his companions laughed, calling out what sounded like jeers. This only annoyed her captor further. He stalked towards her, a long stick now held high, readied to lash her obstinacy. She laughed and cursed as he came, damning him and any children that passed from his shriveled loins to the hottest, most barren and scorched lands beneath Nihialik's gaze. She was a yen of the Akok, a jeng, one of the first people and lords of men. And she would die here today rather than live as a slave. She gritted her teeth, waiting for the blow. And then he disappeared. It was quick. One moment the Janjawa stood there, the next his body caved in and burst apart, clothing, flesh and bone, all violently rendered to pulp, as if crushed in the grip of an unseen hand. Blood spurted in every direction, and she gasped as it washed over her, sickeningly warm and unnaturally wet. Malit. So he was here after all. But then, when did he ever leave? Ayen blinked wiping the gore from her eyes. One half of her face was covered in dusty earth, the other in blood. Rising to her knees, she gazed about. Her Janjawa captor was spread out in every direction, like soft aurora porridge, 
His companions fared little better. One lay flat on his back, eyes open and staring to the sky, his glistening entrails torn out and entangled like fleshy roots with those of his horse. The third Janjawa lay crumpled awkwardly beside his bloodied steed, outstretched arms holding his decapitated head as if trying to retrieve it. One among them, however, had lived. Ayen turned to see a lone horse, a blur of black with speckled flints of grey, speeding away in the distance. Run, she whispered. Flee from me, for I walk with the dead. Faint laughter echoed in her ears. It was not a good laugh, the kind that brought feelings of mirth. Instead, it was filled with a coldness that cut like a dulled blade. Malit, when did you come to sow and joy slaughter? Her ghost husband only laughed harder. It took time for Ayen to sift through the Janjawa's bloodied entrails like some seer. Malit had whispered for her to do so in his odd way, a voice that was not really a voice that she strained to hear. She supposed that was how the dead in their land fought to reach the ears of the living. She found the bit of metal he claimed would be there and fit it into a hole on the collar around her throat. With a turn, the iron ring broke apart and fell away, landing heavy upon the ground. She rubbed her neck and whispered out a thankful prayer, relishing her freedom. Her eyes went to the other dead. Curious, she reached out to one, gingerly undoing the crimson cloth that covered his face. She'd heard so much of the Janjawa, who moved south from the far western desert to the lands of the Jeng in their incessant quest for slaves. Many claimed they were half-men and beasts, marked by their gods with serpent snouts or goat horns they hid beneath their headcloths in shame. But what she saw now was just a man. His skin was as ebon as hers, and though his features were not as broad and beautiful as the Jeng, his face bore no unnatural traits. Only the thick black beard that enveloped his chin and mouth marked him as remarkably different. Her fingers played along three hoops of gold entangled in that rich mass, each twice as large as her thumb and etched with designs, markings, perhaps of his clan, or tokens to his gods. Whatever the case, he was now dead and would have no need of them. Grimacing, she undid the shining rings, one at a time. Gold held no meaning for her, but traders claimed outlanders were as ravenous as suckling pigs to a sow's teat over it which might prove useful. Among the Jeng, more importance was placed on beads or shells like those that made up her alual. The loose bodice of stringed together red and sky-blue glass beads fringed in white draped her long and slender body from shoulders to thigh with a broad strip of yellow studded here and there with gark shells that hung down the front to her knees. It was her prized possession, given to her by her mother upon her first marriage to Malit. The morning of Ayen's dowry ceremony, 30 young men, Malit's family and friends, arrived at her dwelling in a single line, jumping and singing poetry. Malit stayed away, as was custom. In his place, his father, brothers and cousins came to barter. Her initial bride wealth was 100 head of blue-horned cattle. She'd been offended. One hundred bluehorns was no small number, but her family was respected enough, his wealthy enough, and she certainly pretty enough to earn twice that. She'd voiced this to her mother, and her uncles agreed, convincing her father not to accept. 
The next day, Malit himself came to their dwelling, alone and stunning in the tight-fitting Malu'al corset of red and black beads that seemed to amplify his taut, lean frame. Her sisters had pinched her to keep her face calm, lest her pleased smile give away their bargaining position. Still, he'd seemed quite sure of the outcome, a knowing smirk on his face as he led his final addition to the dowry. It was a full-grown bull, its horns a series of remarkable red and white stripes. Red and blue-horned cattle were common, but striped ones were exceedingly rare. There were men who would trade a thousand head of cattle and two daughters for it. The offering was enough to make her father and uncles lose all composure, and they hurriedly gave assent. Her sisters allowed her to smile then. It was a good marriage, but all too brief. Tragedy stole Malit away, leaving her a widow. Nhialik injures, Nhialik heals, his mother had intoned, as Ayen sat grappling with her grief. The woman had lost more than one child in her long life, some before they even left her belly and she had developed a way of accepting God's unknowing will that helped her endure over the years. Ayen could only hope for a bit of that strength. Her ghost marriage was agreed upon by both families. She'd yet borne no children for Malith, no one to carry on his name. They had tried, but no seed had planted. Now she would marry his older brother, Yar, who already counted three wives. Any children she bore him would belong to Malit and fall under his lineage. It was a certain demotion, even if out of ill circumstance and not spite. She would enter a new household as a young co-wife and by no means an equal, not among women who already held eight children between them. But she accepted it in silence. She would be a good wife to Malit, even after his death. Only he seemed unwilling to embrace this fate. The first sign came on her new marriage night, during the ritual that would bind her to Malith's spirit. A strong gale had sent up a sheet of dust so thick, people fled to their homes for cover. Six goats died, all belonging to Yar, their mouths and nostrils suffocated in dust. Old women clutched to charms, and men whispered prayers, calling it an ill omen. Other misfortunes quickly followed. Dog cats carried off several of Yar's calves in the night. Another day, some ten blue horns were found dead after grazing on poisonous kur shrubs. That these odd happenings began with Ayen's arrival in his household only placed blame at her feet. People whispered when she walked past or refused to meet her gaze. Mothers clutched their children in her presence and spat on their faces, a sign to ward off evil. Even her co-wives kept their distance. Many whispered it was Malit, refusing to accept his place among the dead, or hers in the living. He clung to her, they said, like a tick to a cow, sucking the life away of all nearby. Then Yar's eldest son took strangely ill. He lingered with fever for three days before dying. And Yar could endure it no longer. He chased Ayen from his home, pushing her out at the edge of a spear. People watched as he shouted at her in his grief, calling her an apet. In their tongue, it could mean witch or witchcraft. For her, it simply meant cursed. She fell to the ground, trembling and sobbing at his rage. Then it happened. 
Yah's spear flew from his hands. It spun high into the air, hovering for a moment before falling with incredible force. Ayen watched as the tip of the spear found Yar's gaping mouth, piercing him right through, emerging from the back of his neck and embedding itself into the ground. He stood there, impaled and oddly bent back, a look of disbelief still on his face. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Martha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. Ayen fled that very day. Ya's mother had insisted. She claimed to do it for Ayen's own good, for if she stayed there, people would surely kill her. She'd bundled her with water skins and food, telling her to flee back to her parents where she might be safe. Ayen thanked the woman between her fright and tears, wailing her endless apologies. The elder woman had only shaken her head, saying Ayen would have to find a way to bring her tortured son the peace he needed. But Ayen had not gone home. She could not return like this, carrying with her the vengeful spirit of a dead husband. Who knew what harm she would bring? No, she'd decided to go elsewhere, away from the clans, away from any Jeng. She needed help that was beyond them. There was someone, however, someone she had heard people speak of. A sorceress who lived deep in the scorched lands. They called her the Blood Woman. Retrieving the golden rings from the dead Janjawa, Ayan used his robes to wipe her face clean. It was then her eyes spied the gleaming thing at his waist. She reached out and tugged it free. A knife, its hilt crafted of polished ivory. It sat in a golden scabbard, studded in red and green gems that winked at her in the sunlight. Unsheathing the blade, she found a curving length of steel, near long as her forearm. She let it tumble back and forth in her hands, impressed with its weight. Among the Jeng, weapons were not common, even spears, but boys were gifted knives to help ward off predators that stalked goats or cattle. She'd pestered her brothers as a girl to show her how to use one and had become well acquainted with which end was which. Placing the blade back in its sheath, she tucked it into a green beaded sash about her waist. Out here in the scorched lands, it might prove useful. She took the Janjawa's crimson headcloth as well, wrapping it about her face and over her scalp, where the first bits of new growing hair provided little protection from the stinging sun. From their water skins, she drank heartily, keeping a watchful eye on the vultures already circling above. They would draw larger predators, like giant koa cats that ran on four legs but attacked on two. Their powerful jaws could crush a bull's neck and would make short work of her. 
replenished, she gathered herself up and set out again. There were no more Janjawa, nor did she spy any predators. Better yet, none spied her. Once that night, she heard the mournful baying of a Yolgal, long-haired wolves her people believed were the spirits of mistreated dogs. She crouched against a crag of rock that sat like a lone island, clutching the knife, and prepared for a fight. But the baying soon died away, and she curled back to sleep and into Malit's arms. In her dreams, Malit was more than a whisper or a laughing madman. He was strong and full of passion. And when she woke, her body would ache longingly in remembrance. She'd been ashamed and confused at the first dreams when she was yet married to Yar. Was it unfaithful to love a dead husband? Her nights with him were her only refuge, even as he made her waking days a misery. Now, abandoned and alone, she welcomed his embrace whenever she closed her eyes. Yet it only made what she now sought that much harder. The next morning was quiet. Malith was there, as always, a tangle in the back of her mind that would not let go. She tried to speak to him, but as often, he was silent. Other than small lizards that skittered between the deep cracks that fractured the dry earth like an eggshell, she was alone. So this land would remain until Nihialik, remade as Denkt, sent the rains that would nourish it, providing a brief flowering of life. This was proving to make her journey a punishing one. Her water was near consumed, along with her food, Bits of ayyup bread, dried tuck fruit, and kain porridge. She'd tried to catch one of the lizards, but this was their land, and they evaded her with ease. At this rate, she fretted, she'd soon be forced to eat her skirt. Where is your help now, Malith? Can you not keep me from this slow death? Or am I to join you in the next life? Silence was her only answer. Selfish she thought bitterly. It was some two days later, snaking her way through a wide, dried-out riverbed, that she realized she was being followed. She more felt than saw her follower, his presence markedly noticeable in this empty place. She fought to make him out in the distance, but could not, the land bending and shimmering under the relentless heat. Not tall enough to be a man. Some predator then. A wave of dizziness washed over her and she swooned, catching herself. Her food and water had been exhausted the previous night. She'd awakened with her belly cramping in hunger and her throat dry, trying to drink its own saliva. Her eyes scanned for a place to run, but this flat land offered no escape. She cursed, drawing the Janjawan knife from her waist. Her body was too weak with hunger and thirst to fight but weaker still to run. She would have to stand her ground. Whatever beast thought her an easy meal would get a fight, and to the victor went the feast. She crouched low, saving her strength for the battle to come. As her pursuer came into view, she squinted to see clearly. Ayen gasped. Was this some trick? Deceptions of malicious spirits that inhabited these lands? Or was she delirious, the heat and hunger taking its toll? What she was seeing now wasn't possible. It shouldn't be possible. Walking towards her was a bull. But not any bull, 
It was white, with thick, long horns curving up from the sides of its head. Polished smooth, they were covered with crimson stripes that bled down the front of its face and traveled onto its back. Even without the broad, colorful bead collar around its thick neck, she would have recognized it. This was Malit's bull. This was Malit's murderer. She had been with his mother, helping pound seeds when the shouts came. Men were running, carrying Malith between them. He looked as if he'd been bathed in blood. It erupted from his mouth and poured from a deep gash in his belly as his eyes rolled madly in his head. In those frantic moments, she'd only caught a few words. The striped horn bull, Malith's great pride, twin to the very one added to her dowry, had attacked him, goring him with one of its massive horns. Their healers could do nothing. That night, Malit fell into slumber and never woke with the dawn. Seeing her husband's murderer again sent Ayen momentarily numb. A thousand questions filling her thoughts. Then something inside gave way, like a weak bit of mud tasked with holding back a river. She screamed with a rage she couldn't control. Her hands sought rocks, but there were none. They settled instead on the flat squares of dried riverbed hurling them in anger. It was said, long ago, a Jeng hunter killed the mother of a buffalo and the mother of a cow. The buffalo, in anger, chose to remain in the forest and attack man from there. The cow was craftier, entering man's home and making man its servant. Among Jeng, cattle were wealth, sacred, protected, revered. But not this one, not today. Bits of earth shattered or bounced off the bull's hide, but he did not slow his approach. Small bells attached to his horns jangled and rang, making an odd discord of music to accompany her screams. He finally stopped just short of her, standing there silent, head tilted and staring at her with one dark eye. How long she stood there, pouring out her resentment and pain, Ayen did not know. But grief could only sustain so long. Her legs gave way and she collapsed to her knees, panting for breath. Her throat so dry it felt as if she tried to drink the dust beneath her. Why are you here? she rasped. Have you come to torment me? The bull responded with a terrific snort, pushing air forcefully through its nostrils. Its familiar animal scent wafted past her on a hot wind, as if to assure what she saw was no delusion of a shattered mind. Then suddenly it tapped the ground with a hoof, once, twice, then again. She looked up, curious. The bull was driving his thick hoof into the dried earth, digging. She watched, perplexed, as he carried on his work. Then there was an amazing sight. Wetness pushed up from the parched soil like blood from pricked skin. It turned to vapor instantly, unable to survive the scorched plain. But as the hole grew deep, more wetness appeared. Water this time, spurting and bubbling to the surface. An underground spring or a bit of river from the last rains trapped beneath the earth. Ayen scrambled towards the tiny well, pulling down the janjawa cloth as her blistered lips reached eagerly. The water was warm, but wonderfully real. She drank, sucking from the earth as a babe would her mother's breast. 
Dirt and grit and small stones found their way into her mouth, but she filtered through them. She'd never tasted anything so beautiful. When she could take no more, she rolled over onto her back, staring at the sky. Beside her, the bull began to drink as well, using his long tongue to take in gulps at a time. She closed her eyes and said a prayer of thanks. When she opened them again, she found her husband's murderer, her savior, hovering above. How the bull had come all this way and why, she couldn't begin to guess. More important, what did he want? As if hearing her thoughts, he bent his head to nudge her gently with a horn. When she didn't move, he did so again, with more force. It took a moment for her to understand, but then, somehow, she suddenly did. The beast was telling her to get up, to get onto his back. How she managed to do so, she would later hardly recall. When she was young, her brothers would laugh as she vaulted onto the backs of their bulls. It had been a favorite trick. But this act took all the meager strength she had. At long last, she sprawled atop the bull's back, her long limbs spread out across his broad frame while her head rested on his hump. She lay panting, thoroughly exhausted from the effort. This changes nothing between us, she said wearily, and her mind spun away to darkness. Ayen dreamt of home, of family, of Malit, even Yar. The two were proud Jeng men running alongside their cattle. She stood between, rooted like a tree as they passed on either side. Then the striped horn bull appeared, a monster rearing up before her. His eyes hot embers as thick black saliva ran from his mouth. He charged, screaming with the voice of a hundred horrid beasts. She pulled her Janjawa blade then and slashed his throat. The wound bled blackness and the bull fell away, sinking with the shadowy blood into the earth. Ayen's eyes fluttered open to stare at a brown sky. No, it was mud. A roof, rounded like the inside of a cone. The walls were made of the same, one continuous rounded structure that would reach little more than her head were she to stand. From its walls hung the decorated skulls of small creatures, stitched together pouches of leather stuffed with leaves and other things she could not name. She was in someone's home, and she lay on a thick set of skins, soft like goat fur, but much larger. Struggling to sit up, she was cut off by a voice. So you have decided to stay among the living, spirit girl. Ayen snapped her head about to find a woman. She was old, with skin that wrinkled and sagged even as it sought to cling to her gaunt frame. Breasts, shriveled and long past the time they could nourish children, hung like sacks of flesh almost to her waist. She sat with her legs crossed, a long dark red-brown cloth around her waist, and an endless tangle of colorful beads, silver bracelets and other jewelry about her neck, wrists and ankles. But it was her skin that stood out, a deep crimson that extended even to her hair, which hung in thick molded tubes of clay that gathered at her shoulders. Blood woman, Ayen gasped. This was her indeed, the sorceress of the scorched lands. So many have named me, the old woman replied in a flat voice. Her dark eyes barely blinked as she handed over a roughly hewn wooden cup. 
Ayen took it and drank, thankful to wet her throat. Though if they care to look close enough, she continued, they may notice it is not blood that covers me. She reached down to two small bowls. One was filled with something soft and white, reminding Ayen of old thickened milk. The other contained a coppery powder. She mixed the two and began smearing it across her bare breasts. The butterfat only needs a bit of ochre to make ojize, she said. It restores life and protects against Mukuri's fiery eye. Ayen watched, only now noticing the old woman's skin wasn't red at all. In places where the ochre mixture had not yet smeared, it was dark, like burnt wood. Yet she was no jeng. The length of her face and flatness to her nose marked her as different, as did her curving eyes. Here. She offered over an earthen bowl of murky soup and a misshapen lump of what looked like bread. Eat, spirit girl. I have fed you as I could these past two days. Ayen's eyes rounded. Two days? But your belly will want more now that you have wakened. Ayen took the food, but hesitated. Tales of witches who tricked travellers with savoury morsels filling her thoughts. But as the scent sent her stomach crying out, she gave in. The bread was hard to chew and the broth overly salty, but she ate it all. Even the small chunks of meat she could not name by taste and thought better not to ask. Flesh is hungrier than spirit, the old woman murmured, those dark eyes drinking her in. You speak Jeng, but you are not, Ayen said, crunching a bit of bone and sucking out the marrow. Gods, she'd eat the splinters too if she could. I come from the far south, spirit girl, beyond where the Zheng have roamed. But I have long lived in these lands and learned well the tongues of those who dwell here. Ayen said nothing. What little she'd heard of the blood woman held true. That she was a sorceress from some far place who now lived alone among the wild beasts of the scorched lands. Some said in exile for a misdeed done to her people. Others claimed she was the one wronged. My tale is not for your ears, spirit girl, she said, reading Ayen's ponderous look. Rather, you should be telling me what brings you here. In my time I have received many, yet none have arrived as you, Ayen of the Akok. Ayen stopped chewing. A soup-soaked piece of bread perched on her tongue. How do you know me? She stammered. The old woman reached for a hanging flap of animal skin, pushing it back to reveal the outside. It was dusk, and in the distance the sun was beginning his descent into the belly of the fractured earth. But the old woman was gesturing much closer. Standing outside her home was the bull. He used his muzzle to push up the dirt, stopping briefly to give them a passing glance. The one who brought you named you, the old woman said. When he came, bearing you upon his back, you were more in the next life than this one. I might have let death claim you, a mercy. But he pleaded I bring you back. Ayen frowned. He named me? You can speak to him? 
When I claimed to know the tongues of those in this land, I did not mean only we who go on two legs. The old woman replied, He speaks in his own way, if any bother to listen. His kind called the scorched lands home long before the Zheng. He knows how to survive in this harsh place, certainly better than you. Should count yourself blessed for such a friend. That monster is not my friend, Ayen said, more venom in her voice than intended. Just looking at the bull brought her anger flowing back. She held on to that in place of strength. Did he tell you how he murdered my husband? Did he tell you how he stole my life from me? The old woman nodded. He spoke all these things and more. The other bull that bore his markings, they were brothers. Did you know? Twins born of the same womb. Among you, Zheng, he is prized for his markings. But among cattle, they are outcasts, shunned even by their mothers. His brother was all he had. Then your husband took him away, a gift for your bride wealth. He was angry, afraid. In rage, he lashed out, wounding your husband. He had not meant to kill. Ayen sat, unable to form words. To Zheng, cattle were sacred and cared for like no other possession. But never did she think they carried such feelings. She watched the bull dig about in the earth and wondered what lay beyond the depths of those eyes. For a brief moment, a deep sadness replaced her anger. A pity she'd reserved thus far only for herself. But it broke fast as her gaze roamed to his great curved horns. The red that tinged those sharp ends. Was it stained too with Malit's blood? What does he want from me? She whispered. Why is he here? I would think that plain, spirit girl. He has come to make penance. He has pledged his life as yours until it is met. He seeks forgiveness. Ayen gritted her teeth, shaking her head. That is not something I can so easily give. The old woman shrugged. Those matters are your own, spirit girl. I have delivered the message as asked. Better we speak on the business you have with me. Ayen looked to the woman, who stared back in her unblinking way. If he has truly told you all, then you already know. Perhaps. She lifted a bony finger, jabbing it forward. But I want to hear you say it. Ayen swallowed, rolling across a knot sprung up in her throat. All this way she'd come, knowing well her intent, yet when asked, the words buried and hid beneath her tongue. The old woman sucked her teeth in annoyance. If you cannot say it, then you cannot truly want it. She turned away, and Ayen reached out, clutching her arm. Unbind me from Malith, she said, each word cutting like a blade. End my ghost marriage and free us from each other, in this life and the next. The knot in her throat loosened as she spoke the words aloud, but she took no joy in it. Forgive me, Malith. The old woman nodded solemnly. I can do this thing. Ayen released her grip and a thankful breath. 
To call down the vengeance of Malith's dishonored spirit was a risk no Jeng would take. But the blood woman, it was said she had no fear of the living or the dead. I thank you, she said graciously. The old woman snorted. You may thank me with payment. What did the stories of me not make that plain? Ayen nodded. The blood woman did no biddings for free. She always exacted a price. My family has cattle, she offered. Once the marriage is undone, they could bring... She trailed off as the old woman cackled, showing large, perfect teeth. Are you to marry me, spirit girl? What good are cattle here? Ayen grappled for an answer and remembered the rings she'd taken. I have gold. The old woman shrugged with disinterest. Ayen became desperate. I can clean, cook, serve. The old woman scowled. Now you take me for a janjawa so that I need servants to fetch my water and knead my bread. She held up a quieting hand before Ayen could start again. I will name my price, spirit girl. You will meet it. You may remember a previous episode about Indra Da's The Widow and Azir, about a woman haunted by her husband's ghost. But the tone and style of ghost marriage is a completely different take on the pesky, murderous dead husband who causes too much trouble in the desert genre. Now, if I had a nickel every time I've seen this, now I have two. Just two, but more than I expected. (laughs) More than I expected, too. Um, But yeah, these stories definitely share a lot of DNA. In a good way. But as we'll see in part two, ghost marriage takes us in a very different direction. Still, I also love the sense of adventure and action coupled with the supernatural. The listen is just very cinematic and energetic. And I'm thinking about the women in both these stories, Indra's story and Fenderson's story, are women who have to struggle with the conflicting feelings of loving someone who had become harmful towards others. It's a shared trait that makes both stories very emotional and very powerful. But what sets ghost marriage apart, I think, is that shocking twist it's about to hit us with, which is about as much as I can say, I think, without spoiling the story. But trust me on this, you do not want to miss our next episode. And if you enjoyed any of our stories on the show, please don't forget to drop us a five-star review on your podcast player of choice. We really appreciate your support. And we'll always wish you pleasant nightmares. You're listening to Stories to Keep You Up at Night. Created and produced by Realm, your portal to another world. Listen away. Greetings, adventurers. Today we're excited to introduce you to a new story, Dark Dice, a horror podcast that blurs the line between actual play and audio drama, where the story is determined by the roll of the dice. Six adventurers embark on a journey into the ruinous domain of the Nameless God. They will never be the same again. One of the players is now what they seem after a doppelganger, a creature that can assume the form and voice of whatever it kills, infiltrates the team. As the players are picked off and replaced one at a time, can they figure out who the monster is before it's too late? Can you? Here's a quick example of what our show sounds like. The, uh, shambler with the jar of liquid inside of him. 
Soren Arkwright let loose an arrow that cracked the glass, passing through the spine of the creature. The shambler still managed to maintain its forward momentum, but stumbled as it eagerly tried to bite and swipe at Soren, landing near his feet. As Jeff Goldblum has now joined our cast, Dark Dice is available however you listen to podcasts. Stories to Keep You Up at Night, Episode 55. Features Ghost Marriage by P. Jelly Clark. It is produced by Marco Palmieri and Mary Osadolahi. Associate produced by Alexis Latshaw and executive produced by Molly Barton, Julian Yap, and Marcy Wiseman. Hosted by Marco Palmieri and Diana M. Foe. Performed by Jennifer Canari. Audio produced by Tidef Studios. Additional editing by Angela Yi. Original theme by Hashem Asadolahi. Featuring drummer Andrew Niven and mixed by Max Kuttner. Cover art by Kendall Thomas. Find more shows like Stories to Keep You Up at Night by following Realm on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or at realm.fm.